right. Please open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Okay, last week we tackled the difficult beginning of the chapter. Now we move through and see the end. Section one, the relationship of love and law or commandment. Romans 13, verse eight. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let us pray. O oh, holy Lord, we who are called by your name are asking you to pour out your spirit on us again today. Open our minds to understand these scriptures and dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, you know that the flesh that live, that is in us is a powerful enemy and there are many temptations in the world and Satan is real. And yet, you have become our life and our light and the source of our reality and our strength. Lord, we pray today that you would build our hope in you and that you would empower us to do what pleases you. We pray that the desire to please you and obey your law would, would work through all of our members, that we treat each other with love, and that we put off the deeds of darkness, looking forward to the full light of day, even the appearing of the Son of God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Section one, the relationship of love and law. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This section begins with kind of a continuation from last week's passage, the previous verse, pay to all what is owed them, and then it goes on with detail, money, revenue, taxes, respect, and honor. And it simplifies it and restates it, owe no one anything. This doesn't mean have no debts ever. 
This means pay your debts. Why? Well, because you owe them and you got to do what you got to do. It's more than that. This is related to the law of God. How? How is this related to law? It's, it's because the law is uh, distilled into one commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments about how we treat each other may be summed up in what is in our heart towards one another naturally works out in the obedience of the law towards one another, all of the commandments listed. If I owe you money, and uh, am I going to wait until tomorrow to give it to you when I have it with me now? Well, it depends. If I love money and I don't love you, I probably will. Uh, but if I love you, I'll give it to you today instead of making you wait. And so this command to pay your debts flows naturally into the continuing or unlimited or unquenchable or unsatisfiable debt to love one another. It's a debt we are continually indebted to each other. I never finish treating my wife how I ought to treat my wife once I plan a nice anniversary thing and do the dishes and tuck the kids into bed. There, done. I don't owe you anything else, wife. You know, you do your own thing. You know, I've done my duty. You know, duty towards one another comes out of the departure from what was his natural dues, that is to receive eternal glory enthroned in heaven. When Christ stepped down and came to serve us, he who deserves unlimited glory, laying aside his glory and honor to wash the feet of, well, people who have dirty feet, really dirty feet. And again and again, not just in the atonement. The sanctification process, as we know, continues. And this passage is a call to action to continue the sanctification process looking to that very same Christ. When he stepped down and washed our feet in the incarnation and the atonement and in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the will of God, which is essentially, besides loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love one another without limit. He did away with any supposed limit that we might have made up if we had read the commandments of God, if we'd read the Ten Commandments and said, all right, if I don't steal from you, if I, you know, am faithful maritally, if I don't covet, although everybody covets, you know, and, but if I somehow, like, at least on a surface level, fulfill these commandments, I've done my duty, I don't owe you anything, I can hold my grudge against you now, I don't have to go out of my way to take that late night call or prepare that sermon or whatever you're involved with in church community. Like, there's, there's no limit to our duty to one another. Are there personal boundaries? Of course. You know, are there... There, there's a place for limits, but there's no place for limiting our love for one another. There's no, we can't get out of it. it. Because Christ's love is an unlimited love, we are indebted to one another. We who are connected to him by his love for us are thereby jointed to one another by his love for each of us. We're family, and we can't get out of this family. <laughs> Amen. 
in uh, Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 33, one of the scribes, I think one of the scribes of the Pharisees, came up and heard some people, I think it was the Sadducees, disputing with Jesus. And seeing that Jesus answered their sneaky question to trick him well, asked him, which is the most important commandment of all? Innocent question, right? Nah, this guy was a sly fox. Do you get it? It's a trick. If Jesus says the first commandment is better than the second and third commandments, then it's like ranking God's words, which makes some of them lower and some of them higher, which implies that not all of God's words are as holy as God's other words, which may imply either that he is not 100% perfectly holy, you follow? Or that there is division within God. If you were here this morning, you've heard Stephen's sermon on the simplicity of God, and he quoted uh, Deuteronomy uh, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's exactly where Jesus goes in answering the trick question. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe gets it. He gets that. that we owe, this says that we owe God everything and we have an unlimited debt to one another. Right? He's, he's not ranking the commandments. He's not suggesting there's division within God or that some of God's words are better or greater than other. He makes no mistake in his answer because there's no fault in him. The fault is in the question. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All of the other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 15, five through seven says, may the God of endurance and encouragement How come we're talking about endurance and encouragement? Because it's hard to love one another. (laughs) Because we're human. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you, we, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul writes in one of his other letters, he says, make room in your hearts for us. And that is something we have to ask God for grace to do daily because we close off our hearts towards one another. The scripture urges us that we are indebted to one another. 
And why is that? Because he paid a debt he didn't tell. We belong to him forever. Therefore, we belong also to one another. Section two. These last four verses are a call to action. Um, besides this, besides our indebtedness to one another that we can't get out of, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. I wonder if that stung when they read it. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does that mean? The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is like, this is like the, book of, the second half of the book of Ephesians in a nutshell. Put off and put on. Put off and put on. If you've taken the counseling class that some of us have at uh, Clear Creek Chapel, this is like one of their main passages for how do I use the scripture, how do I read the scripture to practice what Paul is saying in a phrase here. So go read it. That's the homework. Um, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness. These are sins of addiction and excess, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. These are following the heart and not remaining faithful to the God who bought us and married himself to his church, not in quarreling and jealousy. And these are the social sins. And maybe you haven't been drunk lately or committed adultery lately, um, but none of us are free from sensuality, excess, None of us are free from quarreling or jealousy. And so it hits home. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Thinking back to the, thinking back to the first section, how do we make provision for the flesh? I gave an example. I said, well, you know, I did the dishes. I put the kids to bed. What else do you want from me, right? Isn't that what we do to each other, you know? Um, like, I, I'm off the clock, right? I'm making provision for the flesh. I'm making an excuse for not fulfilling my obligation to you, my debt to you. How else do we make provision for the flesh? We say, whatever. We get discouraged. We get defeated. We, after a series of defeats, we say, we maybe lose hope, and we say, I'll never be sanctified in this area. I give up. I give in. We're making provision for the flesh. It's like we're grabbing some tools and some lumber and we're real quick constructing a little house and we're saying, all right, flesh, be warm and well-fed and I'll feed you with all your sensual appetites. And when so-and-so, your spouse, your child, your housemate, your pastor, whoever, your boss uh, talks to you like that, you just give it right back at them. And we, and we provide for the flesh. And we nurture that little, that little dragon on our shoulder, that little part of us that is always craving self-idolatry and self-will 
and ignorant of God and desiring to be like God itself and trying to persuade us who should be the Lord of the flesh, or rather we should be making Christ the Lord of us, thereby the fo- we don't follow the flesh, we follow the Spirit. Uh, we get discouraged, we get tired, we get worn out. We've been doing this a long time. We've been through a church split. We've, we've been through the broken relationships. We've, we, it's not going to work. I give up. I give in. This is what we do. And so Paul writes to us this word of encouragement, this call to action. He says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So wake up. Wake from sleep. What does sleep here mean? It's not literal sleep. They're not sleeping. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been in church hearing this letter written. Well, they might have been sleeping. Maybe the pastor shouted this. Wake up! We're on verse 11. Sleep here is a, it's a metaphor for moral laxity. It's for loosening the reins on your tongue and letting your tongue say whatever you wanted to say, right? It's when Satan gets a hold of your tongue, isn't it? It's a metaphor for loosing the reins on your heart and following your heart and, and being deceived for a time that somehow... The, the good, the satisfaction that comes from getting what your flesh is craving is going to be worth it. And Paul is saying, you're deceived. Wake up. And we constantly get deceived by that. And so we need this reminder. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does that mean? Our salvation is nearer to us now. So what is Salvation. That's the question. Is salvation when I prayed the sinner's prayer, when I answered the altar call, when I was justified? Is that salvation? Does this mean, does this mean um, that, uh, that I, I got saved? You know, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, we were justified. We were saved, at least in that sense. It looks like there's more to it here, because he says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. But I thought I already got saved. In the Bible, salvation includes those things, but it's more. So does salvation mean going to heaven? Am I going to, is God going to complete that work of, of justification, sanctification, and glorification, ultimately finishing the work of the salvation of our souls? Yes. God is saving us from sin, and then he'll kind of finish saving us from sin later in that sense by taking us out of the world. But this passage isn't about getting taken out of the world so much as it's about living with one another in the world and how we live with one another in the world. The emphasis is here now. So that's true, but it's more. Is it about avoiding hell? Is it just about forgiveness of sins? Biblically, salvation is God saving us from everything 
especially ourself. It's finishing the work, but it's also sanctification now. Salvation in the Old Testament usually refers to being specifically saved in one time and place from a specific enemy. So think like the Old Testament saints, 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 easy for me to say, think like the Old Testament saints would have thought about salvation. They're being delivered from something dangerous, something deadly right now. God came to save us from our sin, which means so much more than just to forgive us of them and guarantee that we'll meet him in heaven. He came to actually deliver us out of our sins. Will that be fully accomplished here? No. But the scripture says that it is the will of God that you should be sanctified. If he didn't want that, then we'd probably get saved and be right away translated into his presence and he'd, I don't know, raise up somebody else to do his work if that's all he wanted out of us. He wants something from us here now. God is most glorified in us when our sanctification here now comes out of our joy in him and our satisfaction in him. And that's what this passage is about. It's trying to point us to him, not some... um, strictly personal uh, uh, ideal or in the world of ideas only or in the intangible only world of God saves you, okay, I'm forgiven, that's it. It's so much more than that. This morning we sang, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are greater than any other. Sanctification in a congregation like this one doesn't mean when one person gets into a pattern of sitting He or she eventually quits the church, and we who are left are winnowed down, and now we're sanctified. That's not what it means. In this gospel, this God is great enough to save we who remain, and we who remain are the ones who need saving from our sins every day, and God has power to help you. You are able to stop sinning. Are you going to perfectly stop sinning in this life? I do not think so. God has called us to something greater than the deeds we did in darkness. It's a call to wake up. It's a call to action. Why? Because, chapter 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. What is the night and the day? Daytime, nighttime, What does that mean? Can anyone answer that? I guess we're not a talkback church yet. Okay, there are a few possibilities. Let's think about this together and then ask the question, what does the scripture say? Is this day-night thing here just a metaphor for personal holiness, behaving decently, as in the daytime, righteous living? That is what this passage is talking about but the day and night is more than that. I can live properly like it's daytime, but I don't make it bright outside. Only the sun can do that. It's not all about me. So I see in this passage how I'm supposed to behave, but why? What or who is this daytime or day that's coming? Is that talking about the day of the Lord? The final judgment? Not for me, it's not. 
According to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment. However we may be disciplined by God as beloved children, and however we may be rewarded for our deeds when we meet Christ face to face, we will not face him for judgment of, and condemnation of our souls. So, is this passage talking about meeting Christ face to face? Is it talking about the day we die? You're, you know, you were justified, but salvation isn't finished. You have more to be saved from, or, or, or His saving work will be completed when you're given a new body and when you're in His presence, and kind of like nothing bad can happen anymore, right? Is this passage saying you're closer to the day of your death than when you first believed? You're nearing the finish line. When we get there, we'll be fully righteous. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 through 55. Paul says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This passage is talking about nearing the end of our lives. In part, that's included, but it's much more than that. If, if you're not 15 or not 20, and you've passed those years, some of us have, where you kind of think you'll never die and you do reckless things because it won't happen to me. You know, we've all are there, have been there, uh, sometimes still are, unfortunately. Um, if, you're, if you've been diagnosed with a chronic illness, this passage quickly comes into clear focus for you because a terminal diagnosis says, I'm close to the terminus, I'm close to the end. Is it, uh, is it a month? Is it 10 years? I don't know, but now some kind of uh, doctor has said, look, I see the end coming. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden I feel the end nearer. We are like one step away from the immediate presence of God. And this passage does have that in view. When we see him, we shall be like him. Anyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that's the point of this passage. That is included, but there is more. We asked a minute ago, is it talking about the day of judgment? I want to revisit that again, because we know that when we die, there is a judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible calls Jesus the lawgiver and judge. So there is a judgment seat for Christ to sit on. But when God came down to dwell among his people, when he tabernacled among us, what kind of seat did he sit on? Think back to the tabernacle, the temple. There was the tabernacle, there was the altar, the holy place, the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant. And above that, the mercy seat. It was none other than the mercy seat where God met 
his people. And when we meet Christ, he will be sitting on a throne indeed. But for us who hope in him, it will be the mercy seat. So this is not talking about the day of judgment. This passage is a call to action, but out of renewed hope, not out of fear of punishment. So is it about nearing heaven? Do you think? Anybody think that? The day is at hand. What could be brighter than heaven since the Lord is there and he gives it light? True? Well, if the Lord is there and he gives heaven light, then it's not about heaven, it's about him. This is about Jesus who is the light of the world. In Revelation 21, the church, the people of God, are nicknamed the city of God or the new city or the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, 23, we read, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. So the daytime in this passage is pointing to Jesus himself. And we who belong to Jesus are to walk or live as children of light, putting off our old way of living, like I'm done with that, and putting on Christ, which we have to do every day because the flesh still dwells in us. But there's still more that we have to figure out about this passage. We know that in this passage, night means the time apart from Christ, and day means the presence of Christ. But how are we to expect the presence of Christ, as Paul is talking about here? Is this talking about the second coming of Christ? That's later, something we hope for. We're getting closer, we hope for it. So we, we do the deeds of the day, right? Okay? Or is this talking about the kingdom of God here and now, which is growing until it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth? Or as the Apostle John puts it, 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So is this talking about the second coming of Christ? Is that our hope? Is that the reason we cast off the deeds of darkness? Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So is it the second coming? Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 22:12, Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Yes, this passage is talking about the second coming of Christ, but there is more. When this passage talks about night and day, it also compares the glory of Jesus and the kingdom of God to the daytime that overcomes night right here, right now, right in this room, right in our neighborhoods, in our day. You see, in the meta-history of the world, this is a timeline, there's creation, the fall, the promise of redemption. There's the, incarnate, the prophecies of Christ, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church to build the kingdom until He returns. We're somewhere out here. And out there, the return of the king. This scripture comes shortly after the incarnation of God into the world of men in the person of Jesus Christ. It makes sense then that we should think of the whole world as dark until Christ came into it. And that the incarnation was the first hour of dawn in the history of the world. In the words of a familiar Christmas carol, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. In the incarnation of Christ, daytime came to the history of the world, the timeline of humanity. Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, Zechariah, that's the father of John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, spoke of Christ in his prophecy, saying, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Biblically, this is the second coming, and it's the daytime that came, that, that dawned in the incarnation here and now. It's both. Why do we call Jesus the morning star? What is the morning star? The title of this message is Jesus bright morning star. So the morning star is, is it a star? No, it's a planet, right? It's the planet Venus. And, uh, and it rises in the sky first, and it looks like a star, a particularly big and bright star, because it's a planet, it's not too far away, it's pretty much right next to the sun, and it brightly reflects the brilliance of the sun, not providing its own light, but but reflecting the glory of the sun and the coming sunrise. When you see the morning star rise, you know, you look out at, you, you, anybody wake up before it gets light and, and, you, and you have the pleasure of watching the sunrise? We get a lot of hearty nods and a lot of shakes, grumpy shakes. So the morning star is the first star to come up, depending on what hemisphere and horizon you're looking at. And you know, it's the planet Venus. And uh, it's, it's known as the morning star because first, the stars disappear or are finishing disappearing. I usually can't see any other stars in the sky when Venus uh, comes up above the horizon, and yet it's still bright. It's so bright that you can see it. It's like the last sign of the night going away. It's also the first sign of the dawn coming. 
That's why they call it the morning star instead of just that star that wanes or fades into the brightness of the sky last. And therefore, naturally, Jesus, especially as manifested in his incarnation, bringing light into the world, is called the bright and morning star. And so Zechariah prophesies that the sunrise shall visit us on high, from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. This is our hope. Because of this hope, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means righteous living, led by, motivated by, empowered by the supernatural action of God, by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 2 Timothy 1.7 But God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. All of these commandments in uh, quoted, uh, uh, all of these uh, directions Paul gives in verses uh, verse 13 are about self-control fundamentally. Can you see it? Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. All of these are about self a lack of self-control. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus is the spirit of self-control and he's here now to deliver you from those things. Act on it. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. By not being specific when Paul talks about the night and the day, by using the general metaphor of night and day, this passage seems to draw on and reference the appearing of Christ in every sense. The incarnation, which, which marks the dawn of the new creation. The kingdom of God growing throughout the world as the light of the gospel spreads to all the nations of the earth. And the return of the king who will finish the work of salvation that he started in us when we first believed. And when we realize how close to the finish line we are, we realize that the nighttime of history is gone and the kingdom of God is here now. 
And when we perceive that, not only is Jesus standing in our very midst to sanctify for himself a people for his own possession, but that we who are his are each going to see his face soon and very soon. We wake up from sleepy moral carelessness and lack of discipline because not only are we getting closer to him, but the end of all things is near. As it is written, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. Beloved, he is our reward. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen? As the communion servers come forward, please join with me in prayer. Lord God, we don't make it become daytime, as you well know. You've told us how to act as in the daytime, but only you can make the morning come. We pray that by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would cause the morning star to rise in our hearts until the full light of day. Remind us of these things every day, O Lord. Please give hope and empowerment to those who are suffering and discouraged and to those who sin. And that, Lord, is all of us. Therefore, we need you, and we are longing for you and eagerly awaiting the day. Amen.